Ladies and gentlemen, adjust your mirrors, fasten your seatbelts, and get geared up for the I-95 show, the best talk in the tri-state. Here's your host, Julian Coulter. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody, and welcome inside another exciting edition of the I-95 show. I'm your host, Julian Coultry. It is the week of Monday, September 23rd. We are a week out from the start of Major League Baseball playoffs. We are already through week three of the National Football League. We are a few weeks away from the start of the National Hockey League season, and of course, we are only a mere few weeks away from the start of the NBA season. It is that time of year that we all love, the time of year that we all get geared up for if we are a sports fan, and I'm happy to bring you all the juicy details from the I-95 area. Now, I will admit I'm a little bit of a liar. I said that I was going to do my damnedest to not miss another show after taking that long layover off in between the beginning of the summer and a few weeks ago when we came back and did this podcast. The only problem was sometimes moving can be a little bit of a hassle. And for those of you that know me, you know that I lived in Jersey City for the last few uh, months, the last year of my life. And my girlfriend and I decided that we were no longer going to be living in Jersey City. We found a brand new place a little further out in New Jersey. And so for the past two weeks, my life has been consumed with moving and getting moving. And over the last week, I guess, the last week and a half, all my audio equipment and everything I used to to do the I-95 show was packed away. So I knew that after the week that we had in the NFL, the week that we had in Major League Baseball, the fact that we are on the cusp of so many big stories, I had to make sure that one of the first things that I unpacked when I moved into the new place this week was my audio equipment. So that way we could not miss any more I-95 area content and I-95 show stuff. So a little bit later, further on in the program, uh, inside of the toll booth, I'll talk a little bit more about what's been going on in my life and a couple of different things for you guys to look out for content-wise, unrelated to the I-95 show. But for now, we have a lot to talk about. And on the docket for today, we have to cover everything that happened from the standpoint of the NFL and the I-95 era because there were gigantic stories. Everybody knows the big story of the week was Daniel Jones and what he was able to do for the Giants on Sunday night, as well as Eli Manning's ultimate benching and what that means. We will spend a lot of time on that in the first segment. We will also talk about the Philadelphia Eagles and the fact that they now find themselves under 500 after their first three games of the year. They have been ravished by injuries. They've just had an inability to stay healthy, and they are severely missing Deshaun Jackson and Alshon Jeffrey. We will talk about that. And then, of course, the New York Jets, who have their own rash of injuries, but are pretty much putting themselves in a position in which they not only look like losers, but they look like they could be destined for the first overall pick. That is the way that things are going. That is how bad it has been in New York Jetland to start the season. Then a bit later on in the program, we are going to pretty much eulogize the Phillies and the Mets, who at this point look as though their playoff cusps are as good as done. And then, of course, we have the New York Yankees, who clinched the American League East, are still in the race for the best record in Major League Baseball and home field throughout the playoffs, but continue, continue to get hit by injuries. So much so that it is absolutely sickening, and we will discuss that in the later on portions of this program. But without further ado, we need to talk about the big story. And there is only one story in the I-95 area this Monday. Recording the podcast on Monday, obviously you guys will hear it on Tuesday. And that is the Daniel Jones-Eli Manning saga from last week. And a bit later on, I will talk about why I know Eli Manning is a Hall of Famer. But we have details to talk about that happened yesterday. And that is that the New York Giants, in what was the most all-around emotionally draining game, came away with a victory 
and Daniel Jones' first start, and it was immaculate. Now, going into this game, I think a lot of people were excited for the Daniel Jones era. I know I was. And look, on this program before, I was somebody who ripped into the Giants for picking Jones at six. I did not rip them for picking the kid. You can go back and listen to what I had to say. I said that I was not educated enough with the way that he played at Duke in order to accurately grade him as a quarterback. Clearly, the Giants liked him, and if they did, that was who they should have taken. I just didn't think they should have passed up on a grade A pass rusher, especially considering they have had an inability to get after the quarterback this year, which again showed in this game versus the Bucks. But going into this week, things were exciting. People were excited. And let's be honest, for the first portion, heck, the entirety of this game, the reason why Giants fans should be excited about Daniel Jones were showing and were showing in, you know, tenfold, so to speak. He made plays with his legs. And I'm not just talking about the way the game ultimately ended. I'm talking about extending drives with his legs. He was pinpoint with his accuracy. He was smart when it came to his reads. He had issues holding out of the ball. That was something I predicted going into this game. I said probably one or two turnovers. Wouldn't be surprised if he fumbled the ball, which he did, threw an interception, which he did not do, and ended around 230, 250 yards and like 19 to 22 completions. He did a lot better than that. He threw for four touchdowns. He threw for over 300 yards, and he brought the New York Giants back from an 18-point halftime deficit. That's something that even Eli Manning did not have on his resume. And you think of what Eli Manning has done for this Giants franchise. Most fourth-quarter comebacks, that unbelievable 2011 where so many times late in games, Eli won it on game-winning drives, two Super Bowl-winning drives, never had an 18-point deficit comeback the most I believe I saw stat wise that Eli Manning had brought the Giants back from during his tenure was 16 points and that was in 2006 but Daniel Jones brings his team back from 18 points down on the road in Tampa Bay it was exciting stuff and oh yeah the way that he did it was with a beautiful pinpoint pass to Evan Ingram in which he allowed Ingram to go 75 yards for the touchdown. A gorgeous rollout pass to a wide receiver that ultimately was able to go up until the goal line. And then a one-on-one, just masterful pass to Sterling Shepard for the touchdown. And then the piece de resistance was, as I said before, extending drives and making plays with his legs. Something that the New York Giants have not been able to have for some time rushing for the touchdown when he had wide open lanes in front of him on what ultimately proved to be the game-winning score, 32-31 at the time. And of course, it goes without saying that the New York Giants were not without their own issues on offense, and that included their defense practically giving it away on what would have been the game-winning drive for the Tampa Bay Bucks had it not been for their kicker Matt Gay and his inability to make extra points and make the game-winning field goal but the Giants defense was atrocious all game it could not stop anybody and Janoris Jenkins who went out after the game two Sundays ago when the defense just got absolutely torched apart against Buffalo pretty much saying we can't cover receivers out there for 35 seconds. Well, he's one-on-one with Mike Evans, and he allows Mike Evans to get behind him and get a gigantic 50-yard play that set the Buccaneers up in field goal range. They have their own issues. They, of course, had the delay of game penalty, which ultimately moved him back, and then Gay wasn't able to hit the field goal, and it all turned very, very sour very, very quickly. And the New York Giants took the victory 32-31 to to get the Daniel Jones era off on the right foot. Now, there were negatives outside of the defense. We all know that. Negative number one is the fact that Saquon Barkley is now going to be out for most likely 
anywhere between four to seven weeks. Maybe the earliest he could come back is the Giants stretch, I guess, week seven against the Cardinals. If all really, really rehabs well for Saquon, latest you assume probably after their bye week 11. It is heartbreaking. And for the Giants, it is literally the most, not to say Jets thing that could have happened to them, but the most Jets thing that could have happened to them, which is your brand new shiny new toy, Daniel Jones, comes into the game, he's looking good, and then literally three or four plays into his second drive, I think it was, Saquon Barkley winds up getting upended and falling wrong on his ankle, and he gets a high ankle sprain. He apparently had a high ankle sprain his freshman year of college. He wound up missing two weeks and coming back and rushing for 195 yards versus Penn State. I'm not going to be that overly optimistic about this. Giants probably have as good of a training staff as Penn State did. But the fact is, the Giants are not going to rush uh, Saquon Barkley back. It's bad news for my fantasy team because I have Saquon Barkley on it. But the fact is, this is more about the Giants and about their future aspirations and everything that they are looking forward to and everything that they want to do for their future with Daniel Jones. But... Outside of Saquon Barkley and outside of their defense's inability to really make a stop and pretty much giving the ball away outside of a very impressive Michael Thomas tackle on defense in the fourth quarter, it was all exciting for Daniel Jones. As well it should be. Because this is what we knew about Daniel Jones coming in. We knew that the Giants liked him. I mean, heck, they drafted him six overall. And again, Gettleman proved that if you like a guy, you go get a guy. We knew that he came from the same cloth as Eli Manning, but was more athletic. And we knew that he was going to get a chance to play. But what we didn't know is how he was going to handle himself in the regular season. Because in the preseason, that's one thing. But in the regular season, it's a completely different monster, especially going up against Todd Bowles, who we've all said countless times is a much better coordinator than he is a head coach. And he has proven that through two weeks of this NFL season and then tried to prove it in week three against a young quarterback in Daniel Jones. He gave him new looks. He gave him interesting coverages. He gave him blitzes. He gave him all the switches and fixes that he could handle. But Daniel Jones stood in his face. And he got beat up. And he got pushed around. But he stood back there like a pro. And he led his team on a game-winning drive. And granted, it wasn't ball in his hands to win it. But he was able to win it. And he was able to give the Giants at least a chance to do something. And that is something that, let's be honest, the New York Giants have not had for a long time. Because the New York Giants have won two Super Bowls with Eli Manning. And they have been a good, fun team. But the fact is, the New York Giants did not have that fire in any of the years that they won a Super Bowl. I mean, the year they won in 2007... They were the cool underdog story. They have the greatest play in Super Bowl history. They have the best catch. You can make a case in NFL history, though apparently according to the new NFL 100 that came out this past week, David Tyree catch in the Super Bowl is the third best catch of all time between uh, behind the Immaculate Reception and the Dwight Clark catch. I don't know if I agree with that, but even then the Giants started 0-7. They were inconsistent. They were a 9-7 or a 10-6 team. And their playoff games were unique and fun. But they weren't rattling away. They weren't putting up 35 points a game. They are gritting it out beyond a defense that had the likes of Osu Minura and Michael Strahan and Justin Tuck and all these grade-A prime, primetime players. Then Eli Manning got the job done. And the same thing goes for 2011. For the first time ever... The New York Giants have an exciting, offensive, two-time dual-threat quarterback behind center. One who can make plays and extend drives with his legs, something we saw him do 
phenomenally in the first game against the Bucks, and who can make the throws with his arm and is accurate. He is superbly accurate. And that is something you cannot buy. He looked good against a very good defense. And now, over the course of the next couple of weeks, the New York Giants are going to give him the opportunity to make plays. Because Yeh doesn't have Saquon Barkley, which, yes, is going to really inhibit his ability to maybe do as much stuff at the line. But... He's going to be playing some teams that at the minimum he will be able to make some plays against. In the next five weeks, he's got a home game versus the Redskins and a home game versus the Vikings. Redskins game should be easy enough for Daniel Jones to play pretty well and Vikings have a good defense, but it is at home. It is not on the road against the Vikings. He'll play the Patriots, which let's be honest, that's going to be the toughest test he faces all year. We know what Bill Belichick can do against rookie QBs. We know how just feeble and anemic he can make offenses look. And their defense has been superb. It's on the road at Foxborough. If he looks like a rookie that game, you cannot blame him. But that's three weeks from now. We'll have plenty of time to prepare. Then he has a home game versus the Cardinals and a road game versus the Detroit Lions. So those next five weeks are really good games for the New York Giants young rookie quarterback and Daniel Jones to prove what he can prove in order to win some games. I'm encouraged by it. I'm excited for it. I think if I'm looking at that stretch, I would not be surprised if the Giants can go 3-2, and 4-1 and one in that stretch. Win the game at home against Washington. Maybe squeak out a win in the game against Minnesota. Lose against New England win versus Arizona, and win on the road against Detroit. Assuming their defense doesn't give up a massive amount of points every single game and they can try and get some semblance of a defense, their offense should now be able to keep them in games without Saquon Barkley. That's tough to think about, but I do think they could do it. Now, obviously... Daniel Jones coming in means the end of the Eli Manning era. I think last week there was a lot more shock and awe about it coming to a close. The fact that as of Monday of last week, Pat Shermer was not going to name a starting quarterback. Then on Tuesday, he officially named it Daniel Jones. Everything that came with the fanfare of that, the sayonara with Eli Manning, And look, I was not doing the podcast two years ago when Ben McAdoo made the untimely decision to go to Geno Smith as his starting quarterback. That was a shit show, so to speak. But this was the right time. The Giants needed to see what they had with Daniel Jones. And clearly they say hindsight is twenty twenty, but after one game the Giants made the right decision going to Daniel Jones as their quarterback and getting an opportunity to see what the Daniel Jones era can bring. Now, despite that, you do sing a swan song to Eli Manning. Because this is the greatest quarterback in Giants franchise history, and quite possibly behind LT, and you can make a case even ahead of LT the greatest player in New York Giants history, bar none. And if you ask me, and I've said it before, and people will argue with me till I'm blue in the face, Eli Manning is not only a Hall of Famer, he is a no-doubt Hall of Famer. No doubt. Say what you want. Compare him with Joe Flacco or Jim Plunkett or whoever you want to. He is a Hall of Famer, no doubt about it. Whether or not he is a first ballot is the only thing you can debate. He will be in Canton with a bust enshrined years from now when he is finally up for it. And it is because of the stats and the company that Eli Manning holds. And you can give me the stat that I know somebody tried to give me, which is that if Joe Flacco who should be the guy that you talk about in the same breath with Eli Manning, apparently, 
won two Super Bowls and two Super Bowl MVPs, wouldn't you feel weird saying Joe Flacco is a no-doubt Hall of Famer? And I guess, yeah, that's a valid criticism. But the fact of the matter is Joe Flacco does not have the accolades that Eli Manning does. If I look at Eli Manning's list of accomplishments right now, top 10 all-time in pass completions, top 10 all-time in yardage, top 10 all-time in comp- um, in touchdown passes, two-time Super Bowl champion, two-time Super Bowl MVP, one of only five quarterbacks in history to do that, over 210 consecutive NFL starts, played for one team, four-time Pro Bowler, NFL Man of the Year. I can go on and on, but these are the accolades that Eli Manning has that Joe Flacco doesn't have and that a handful of quarterbacks do not have. And for a guy who, let's be honest, you probably put his record up against some of the other quarterbacks and you say, what, 116 and 116 in his career, he's not that good. Well, he has the same sort of stats and abilities, top 10, as guys who consistently won year in and year out. And that was with Giants teams that just really didn't have that much talent. He is close with Big Ben, who had better receivers, better offensive lines, and better defenses, and better head coaches, you could make a case, if you're not a Coughlin fan, or even if you are a Coughlin fan. Over the last five years or so, when it was McAdoo and Shermer and et cetera, et cetera, than Eli Manning ever had, and he's right there with him. I don't think Eli Manning's a better quarterback than Tom Brady or Joe Montana or his brother. Heck, he's probably not a better quarterback than Ben Roethlisberger. But he's an all-time great. He's in elite company. He's gotten the job done on two occasions. If you're one of these clowns that wants to tell me that Eli Manning never balled out in his career, he balled out in two Super Bowls. And with the game on the line, twice against the New England Patriots, the greatest football dynasty of all time, Eli Manning not only succeeded, he thrived. He orchestrated two game-winning touchdown drives to beat New England in the Super Bowl. He did it in the regular season, and he did it enormous amounts in the playoffs. He's a Hall of Famer. If you don't think he is, that's your prerogative, but it's a hill that you're going to die on, that you're going to be wrong about. And that's just the way that it is. I grew up a Giants fan. Eli Manning never was flashy. He was never spectacular. And he sure as shit does not have the athleticism that you see Daniel Jones putting in this past Sunday. But he's my favorite Giant of all time. The Giants would not have two Super Bowls without him. And he is one of the most iconic players in franchise history. And if it wasn't for one poorly timed start by Geno Smith two years ago, he would have had a very good chance of breaking Brett Favre's consecutive games played record. And that's very impressive. But the fact is, he needed to be benched this week. It was time for Daniel Jones to be there. And you know what? Eli Manning still being on the roster probably is a bit of a bummer to a guy who deserves to get one last shot with a franchise, wherever that is, if he can play still. But I'm excited for it. Because what did Eli Manning do every single day he got to a practice facility? He studied film. He studied checks. He looked at line of scrimmage plays and everything that they needed to do to get ready, and he prepared. And Daniel Jones needs to follow in those footsteps because he has the talent, but he needs to be as good football IQ style as Eli Manning is. And having Eli Manning there can only, only benefit him. 
And that's something that's really, really exciting. When we come back here inside the I-95 show, we do have to talk about the other two teams, Philadelphia Eagles, who have just been ravished by injuries, and the New York Jets, one in the same in that injury front, but have their own issues when it comes to certain things here or there. Plus, we will look at the early picks for week four in the NFL, all coming up next here inside the I-95 show. Welcome back here inside the I-95 show. I am your host, Julian Coultry. A little bit of it's always sunny in Philadelphia to get you set into this next segment here. Uh, If you know anything about me, you know that my favorite show is It Is Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I have watched every single season multiple times. I first started watching this show when it first came out. Uh, I know that was very edgy for me because it came out back in, what was it, 05? And I was like maybe 12. But I love the show. I found it on FX and I, I stuck with it since. I'm a big, big fan of the show. If you ever want to talk about It's Always Sunny with me, I will be 100% down to discuss it with you. I can quote every episode. I could tell you my top five favorites. Everything about the show I am in love with when it comes down to it. Uh, so... I'm interested to sort of see what this new season does. Season 14 of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. One more season and they will be the longest running live action episodic sitcom of all time. Which is very, very cool. And you know what? They're doing so many fun and interesting things. And the cast is unique but loves the show so much from what it seems that I would be shocked if they do a couple more seasons of it. It seems like at this point they don't have a lot of expectations from FX networks, and so you know what, Rob McElhenney and Charlie De- Charlie Day and Glenn Howerton and you know, Caitlin Olson and Danny DeVito. If you guys want to keep doing it, if you happen to be listening to this podcast and you guys are keep doing it, I love the show and I really really hope that you guys do a season fifteen and a season sixteen all the way to season twenty or whenever you want to stop because the show has not lost a beat and it continues to be funny and it continues to just. Be a great blend of humor and sort of a little bit of nostalgia for a guy like me who grew up outside of the Philadelphia area, uh, even though born and raised in New Jersey and the New York area, high school and formative years right outside of Philly. So I always loved that. And I always loved that it was kind of a little bit always sunny in Philadelphia, except when it rains. And right now it is a bit rainy with injuries for the Philadelphia Eagles. That in the business is what we love to call a masterful transition. And we do have to transition because the Philadelphia Eagles right now find themselves at one and two to start this young season in the NFC East. And if you remember three weeks ago when I did my NFL season preview on the I-95 show, I pretty much said that the Philadelphia Eagles will have an opportunity to be a favorite for the Super Bowl as long as they do not get hurt. And right now, well, it looks like that is a real possibility that injuries could very well derail the Philadelphia Eagles season. All started two weeks ago in were last week in the game against Atlanta on the road. Of course, they came back in game one and had that awesome second half showing against Washington. Game two on the road in Atlanta, you lose Alshon Jeffrey to an injury. You lose Deshaun Jackson due to an injury. You lose everybody as far as offensive and defensive talent and help to injuries right now. So much so that last Wednesday they didn't even hold a practice because of how many injuries they had racked up over the span of the first two weeks of the NFL season. And it showed. In their home game on Sunday, week three, against the Detroit Lions, they could not make plays on defense to get healthy stops against Matt Stafford. They could not get anything going on offense at times. All three deep balls I wound up reading that Carson Wentz tried to throw downfield were dropped, something we did not see happen in week one when Deshaun Jackson was the guy going out there and catching balls and getting the opportunity to score touchdowns for Philadelphia. Nelson Aguilar was very good. He was legitimate in the targets he got an opportunity to see. 
with the injuries to D-Jax and Alshon Jeffrey. But outside of that, they didn't really get any contributions from their second and third wide receivers. Zach Ertz obviously was good, but he couldn't do everything himself. And at times, the offensive line just looked absolutely overmatched. I mean, there was a play in the fourth quarter where Carson Wentz was trying to get a first down and the rush came from the Detroit Lions and the offensive line just stopped. They stopped in the middle of play. Whistle wasn't blown. They just stopped blocking. And obviously Carson Wentz got pressure on him. He did not get sacked. I believe he threw the ball away and it wound up not being caught by anybody. But, you know, what are you doing? It looks like a play from the longest yard when... Adam Sandler's character comes in and the offensive line just decides to not block for him and he gets lit up like they're trying to teach him a lesson. That's what it looked like. And I don't think that's what it was. At least I hope that's not what it was if you're an Eagles fan. But, man, to see the way that through three weeks this Eagles team has looked, it is not what you were expecting. And it's exactly what I said, which is that injuries or could be what derails the Philadelphia Eagles season early on. And it hasn't been an injury to Carson Wentz, which is what I think a lot of people expected it was going to be. But it's just been their injuries to the wide receiver core, to their defense, to their offensive line, to their blockers, to everybody. Everybody but Carson Wentz. And now at 1-2, and two, they are in a very tough spot. Because week three they play the Green Bay Packers on the road at Green Bay. And Green Bay's kind of been a revelation this year. I don't think a lot of people expected them to start the season undefeated, especially with the new head coach and the sort of perceived issues with the offensive line coming in or with the with the offensive game planning coming in with Matt LaFleur taking over for Mike McCarthy. But they're 3-0. Their defense is playing a lot better. And they have been able to do that with kind of inconsistent production from Devontae Adams and from split running back time between Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. So at 3-0 and and going on the road for Thursday night football at Green Bay, the Philadelphia Eagles are most certainly going to have their hands full. Doug, uh, Doug Peterson already announced that Deshaun Jackson will not be playing in this game. So again, that's a bit of a weakness for the Eagles as far as what they're going to be doing on these deep balls. Seems like Alshon Jeffrey could be back, though we'll have to see what practice holds because it is a short week. You never know. Even if they look healthy, they might not be ready for a Thursday night game. And as far as the defense is concerned, we'll have to see what they're able to do and who they're able to suit up. But tough, tough position for Philadelphia. And then after that, they do get a break because they get to go home again and play the Eagles ten, or play the Jets 10 days later uh, who have just been awful in their own right. And that is how we will transition. Coming into this week, if I had told you a month and a half ago that the New York Jets would be 0-3 on their bye and had just not been able to muster anything on offense against the Bills, against the Browns, and against the New England Patriots, I think you would have said, well, that sounds like the Jets, but also something has gone horribly wrong based off of the expectations of this season. And indeed, that has been the case. From a week and a half ago, finding out that your star, young, future, potential franchise quarterback has mono to the point where we have not seen Sam Darnold in now more than two weeks. To the fact that you're without valuable offensive weapons outside of Le'Veon Bell, and your wide receivers are just absolutely trash, to the fact your offensive line cannot block anybody, to the fact that defensively you can only make so many plays to try and keep yourselves in these games, the New York Jets have become who they thought who we thought they were. They're the Jets. Adam Gase looks outmatched as a head coach in his first three games. Offensively speaking, they have had nothing. Though, everybody will make the excuse for Gase, which is 
He doesn't have Sam Darnold. He doesn't have an offensive line put together because of Mike McCagnan. He doesn't have wide receivers because Quincy and Nunwa got hurt and they don't have anybody else to help out. And he doesn't really have a good defense because everybody that Mike McCagnan picked stinks and everybody else has just not been able to do the job effectively. The excuses are there for him, but he has looked outmatched. And for, through the first three games, the so-called quarterback whisperer has not been able to get anything from Sam Darnold in game one was not able to get anything from Falk or Simeon in Game 2, though Simeon got hurt, and obviously wasn't able to get anything from Falk in Game 3 against the New England Patriots. And for all intents and purposes, the Jets did score two defensive touchdowns in this game, or special teams defensive touchdowns, but it was a shutout. 30-14, to 14, the defense pitched a shutout for New England, and now the New York Jets have only been able to score a span of 17 points in the last two games and 23 point, or 33 points in the span of the first three games of the year. Bills are 3-0 since beating the Jets. Patriots are 3-0, and those two teams look poised to just run away with the first and second place spots in the AFC East. I mean, the Bills always seemingly start fast. This year, they start as fast as possible, though they play each other this week, the Jets and the Pats. So we'll see what becomes of that. But man, you're looking at something that, if it does not get corrected quick, and right now it shows no real signs of getting corrected quick anytime soon, it is just going to spiral out of control. Because the Jets have an opportunity next week they're on a bye this week next week to play the eagles and i just mentioned it eagles could be getting healthy for that game 10 days off after this thursday night football game i assume deshaun jackson's probably back after that game that'll be interesting then you play the cowboys at home which is just going to be a cowboys home game with the amount that the cowboys travel as far as their fan base is concerned patriots again at home at metlife this time on the 21st and then Finally, two games that you potentially could win, but no guarantees at Jacksonville. Gardner Minshew looks pretty good in that game. He looked good against Tennessee in a a victory for Jacksonville. And then the Dolphins, who are the worst team in football, but the Jets are equally as bad. So at this point, you're pretty much assuming that if the way the line is going to be projected for New York breaks the way that it's going to break based off of the projections, you are 0-3, then 0-4 against the Eagles, 0-5 against the Cowboys, 0-6 against the Jets, with an opportunity to go 0-7 going into the game against the Miami Dolphins, or at the very minimum, 1-6. Then it lightens up a little bit after that Dolphins, or after that Jags game for for the Jets, because they have the Dolphins, and then they have the Giants at MetLife, which will be a Jets home game. Redskins on the road, Raiders at home, Bengals on the road, Dolphins at home. So end of the year, the Jets can wind up breaking even. But right now, it just looks like it's going to be utter disaster. And for a team that had a lot of expectations, that was the last thing that you really could hope for. The way that you start is not good if you're the New York Jets. You do not want to see it. You do not want that to be the way that your season begins. And yeah, you know what? It says a lot about a team that ends the season on a good run. But for the most part, that's not what you really want to see. Anyway, let's transition here inside the I-95 show to look at the early odds for NFL Week 4. As I mentioned before on this program, we do record it on Monday. So that means there's still that terrible Monday night football game to be played, which of course is against the Redskins and the Bears. I will not be watching that. That is a god-awful Monday night football game. Um, So the odds, though, are going to be a little bit changey over the course of the week. They will most definitely fluctuate. But coming into Monday, Tuesday, this is what we are looking for, and I will give you my thoughts and my picks as far as the games are concerned. Obviously, because of the odds changing, I'm not going to do cover versus no cover. I'm just going to go straight picks. 
Thursday night game I already mentioned. You got the Packers at the Eagles in week four. Packers four and a half point favorite in this one. Uh, not going to pick the points or anything like I said. I do think the Packers are going to win it though. I think they've played much better. Their defense is really good right now. And the Eagles just don't have enough talent right now offensively to help Carson Wentz because they have not gotten good contributions offensively from their deep threats. Delson Aguilar has been good but has made some boneheaded mistakes. And they just haven't been able to get a good consistent run game to start the year either. So I like the Packers to move to 4-0 at home at Lambeau. As for Sunday, you got Titans 1-2 at Falcons 1-2. That's a home game for Atlanta. Falcons are inconsistent, but the Titans are not really that good. I think the Falcons take care of business at home in a shootout. I like them to win that one. Patriots 3-0 versus Bills 3-0 at the Bills. So this line could fluctuate. I could see it go up to as many as maybe New England giving 10 to the Bills. Right now it's Patriots minus 7. I think New England wins it, but I do think it's close. And I think it's going to be low scoring because the Bills have a very good defense. It is in Buffalo. And the Patriots, you know what? They're good, but they usually tend to play their division rivals that are good. Okay, Buffalo. Close for the first quarter, quarter and a half. I think after that, New England pulls away. Chiefs at the Lions, a battle of two undefeated teams, though the Lions are 2-0-1, so they're a little bit more complex of a undefeated team. Chiefs 3-0. Chiefs a road favorite and a big one at that. Six and a half, uh, the Chiefs right now, a uh, favorite at the Lions. So that's an interesting one. I like the Chiefs to win this one, though. Even though Matt Patricia's defense has been solid the last two games, both victories for the um, Detroit Lions, uh, I think that the Chiefs' offense is just way too good and they will be able to win easily on the road at Detroit. And they need to keep winning, because as long as the Patriots keep winning, then, you know what? That battle for home field, which could be so crucial in the AFC this year, is going to be up and at them. Raiders at the Colts. Colts a seven-point favorite at home. I think Colts are going to win this one. Raiders have come back down to earth since that opening night victory, though Darren Waller has been very good for them. I think he might have a big game, considering the fact that Austin Hooper just had two touchdowns versus the Colts defense. Chargers 1-2 at the Dolphins. Chargers 17-point favorite. Dolphins are terrible. I think this one has potential to be a shootout. And if you are looking for a sneaky upset, I could be pretty confident that the Dolphins will give the Chargers a lot. Chargers play inconsistent and play down to their teams a ton. Uh, I do think San Diego wins it, though. Redskins at the Giants. Giants a three-point favorite at home. Probably the first time in a few weeks that the Giants have been a favorite. I think they will be able to beat the Redskins. couple of things to look out for this week for the Giants. What are they going to do for their running back situation now that Saquon Barkley is out? We did not touch on this, but it is worth mentioning. Will Wayne Gallman be the starting running back come Sunday afternoon? Or will they potentially dive into the free agent bank? Maybe a guy like Jay Ajahi, who seems to be available, or C.J. Anderson, who rumor has it could potentially be a guy that the New York Giants look for in order to man the next couple of weeks while you have a guy like Saquon Barkley out with that injury, high ankle sprain, as we already talked about. Also, potentially, if Case Keenum and the Redskins lose, could we see Dwayne Haskins starting week four for the Washington Redskins? Worth discussing. Either way, I think the Giants win it at home. They move to 2-2. Two and two. Ravens at home versus the Browns. They're a 5.5-point favorite. Browns look all sorts of out of whack right now. Their offense looks terrible. Their defense can't really make the stops when necessary. And now they're on the road against Lamar Jackson, who was just put on a clinic. Even though the Ravens lost last week versus Kansas City, I like the Ravens to win this one. Panthers on the road versus the Texans. Texans 2-1, and one, Panthers 1-2. One and two. Uh, you had a very impressive game from Kyle Allen in his debut this season. It does not seem as though Cam Newton is going to play. It's Monday after all, so we don't know. But either way, Texans look really good after making all those moves to try and finally win some playoff games. I like them to win. Cats move to 1-3. and three. Texans move to 3-1. and one. 
Bucks at the Rams. Rams a nine and a half point favorite at home. I think Rams win that, though this should be a high scoring contest. Also could see Jameis Winston throw three picks based off of the way that they play. Seahawks two and one at the Cardinals, who are 0-2 and one. Their lone tie was that opener against the Detroit Lions. I think Hawks rebound after they got thrashed by the New Orleans Saints at home. I think they'll win and move to three and one. Vikings at the Bears. The Bears, they are one and one. Of course, having not played on Monday Night Football, so I can't tell you what the record would be going into this game, but I think the Vikings will be able to win and move to three and one to keep pace with the Packers. Jaguars at the Broncos. Broncos three-point favorite at home. I like the Broncos to win this one and get their first win of the season against Gardner Minshew and the Jaguars. Cowboys 3-0 at the Saints. I think on paper, if you had looked at this game, you would have gone with the Saints, but this was pre-Drew Brees injury. So because of that, I'm going to go Cowboys. Cowboys moved to 4-0. Saints moved to 2-2. And pretty much have a division wide open that because of that Drew Brees injury, don't know what's going to really happen and who will take advantage. Very interesting to see. Bengals at the Steelers. Battle of two 0-3 teams on Monday night. Probably something a lot of people did not expect, but that is the case. Steelers lost a game in which they did not get any opportunities to play well against San Francisco. And they were gifted turnovers at points from the Niners, but they did not win. They're 0-3, but they are a five-point favorite at home on Monday Night Football against the Bengals. So I picked the Steelers to win that one, get off the schneid, move to 1-3. Bengals move to 0-4. Those are my NFL picks for this week. Always exciting look at how things shape up in the I-95 area and all are throughout the NFL. It is hard to believe it is week four already of the National Football League season. Already week four of fantasy football season. My fantasy season already over after I lost Saquon Barkley uh, to injury this past week. But hey, the New York Giants look good. Daniel Jones looks good. And the Eagles and Jets have some things to figure out. When we come back here inside the I-95 show, it is baseball talk. We will briefly eulogize the Mets and the Phillies, but more importantly, we will talk about how the Yankees continue to be decimated by injuries as they prepare for the opportunity to get home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Coming up next, you're inside the I-95 show. stuff that we are looking for here on the i-95 show earth wind and fire september 21st night it was a few days ago uh so i hopefully you were able to jam to a little september by earth wind and fire to celebrate your 21st night of september i know i had a pretty good time uh went on a little nice little date night in new york city with my girlfriend and, and me it was fun we had a little vino did a little muscles Good, good restaurant. If you're ever down in the um, West Village or, uh, yeah, the West Village area, um, go to Flex Muscles. They have top-notch muscles. I'm a big muscle guy because you get a lot of flavors, a lot of good uh, different different flavors and, and different, you know, textures for you know, the type of broths that you can get for the muscles. And then they're not really filling. You can eat a ton of them because they're just a little seafood pockets. So, Flex Muscles, and then Layla Bar is the wine bar that I went to. One of the only bars I've ever been to in New York City that does happy hour on weekends. 4 p.m. to 7.30, uh, 5 p.m. to 7.30, they do wine, cheese, happy hour. It's top notch. So if you're one of those fancy types like myself who like to go out there, do a little wine and cheese on a Saturday, Layla Bar which is in the West Village, uh, as well as um, Flex Muscles. Two really, really good spots that I encourage you to check out. 
Back here inside the I-95 show, I am your host, Julian Coultry, and we have to move to baseball because it is that time of year, folks. We are coming up on the end of September, which means the beginning of October, which means the Major League Baseball postseason. It is time for October baseball pretty soon, and it looks like for now, the only odds that the I-95 area has, the only hope in getting a championship will be on the shoulders of the New York Yankees. That's right, folks. It is officially time to eulogize the Philadelphia Phillies and the New York Mets. It took a while, and technically, technically the Mets and the Phillies are not eliminated from playoff contention, but I think it's time to put a fork in them. Because I look at the standings right now, and I see the way things are shaping up with two series remaining for the Phillies and the Mets. Phillies take on the Nationals in a four-game set this week and then a four-game series versus the Marlins. And the Mets take on the Marlins, and then they end the year with the Braves. You look at the standings, Mets 81-74, and four and a half back from Milwaukee, who has the last wild-card spot right now three games away from being eliminated and the Phillies 79 75 six games back of the wild card and two games away from being eliminated at this point I'm pretty sure for the Phillies they would need to win I would assume every single game from now until the end of the year and pretty much hope that Milwaukee loses every game or the Nationals lose every game because if that does not happen, then they are toast. And as for the Mets, it's pretty much the same thing. At four and a half games back, they'd really need Milwaukee and the, the Nationals to have a big, big falter. And they got to sweep their series against the Marlins. And then they also have to sweep their series against the Braves. I don't see it happening. I think both teams get eliminated by the time the weekend rolls around, maybe even before that. And that's what we'll be looking at, folks. Cubs for a while were in that last wild card spot. Then they just went on an absolute nosedive. They lost their last six games. They only have four wins in their last ten. They're now four games out of Milwaukee from that final wild card spot. And credit to the Brewers because their MVP and Kristen Yelich went down with a knee injury, I think probably about two and a half weeks ago. And they have just been rolling since then. They're 8-2 and two in their last 10. They've won four straight games. They've moved into a tie for the first wild card spot with the Washington Nationals, who are both 80. Uh, Nationals are 85-69, and 69, and Milwaukee's 86-70. and 70. So the Washington Nationals technically have a .01 better win percentage than the Milwaukee Brewers, but... That's what's going on right now as far as the NL wildcard is concerned. So credit to Milwaukee. Cubs, pretty much, you can write them off too. They're three games away from being limited in the wildcard as well. A poor end of the year for the Cubbies and a team I actually picked to be in the World Series. Uh, as for the other AL wildcard, you have Oakland, who is two games up on the first wildcard spot. They will look to have home field advantage should they make the wild card game. And then you have Tampa Bay and Cleveland. And it is only those three teams. Every other division winner has clinched. So they are completely able to worry about what they're going to be doing at home field advantage. Minnesota, well, they technically have a four-game lead with three-game elimination number against Cleveland. So that one's pretty much all done. But Houston and the Yankees have both clinched home field. And that means for your final stretch in this Major League Baseball AL wildcard race. You got Oakland, Tampa, and Cleveland fighting for those three spots. Oakland and Tampa both lost their last game. Cleveland won. Tampa and Cleveland tied right now at 92 and 64 for that last wildcard spot. Everybody else is eliminated. Boston not going to get a chance to defend their World Series title this year as they find themselves 10 and a half game back of that wild card and they are eliminated. They were eliminated last week. So it's those three teams for two spots. Nobody's really probably going to be supplementing any of the divisional winners. Like I said, if Cleveland probably won every game the rest of the year and Minnesota lost every game, I think you might have a spot in which Minnesota does not get a playoff berth. But 
I really don't see that happening. It does not seem as though it has a realistic possibility. Which brings us to the New York Yankees. 102-55, a 650 win percentage. They're going to probably finish with close to 105-plus wins, assuming the way that their stretch goes from now until the end of this weekend when the regular season comes to a close. And they are fighting tooth and nail with the Houston Astros. But from the moment the season got underway, it has been about one thing and one thing only. And it hasn't been about home runs. It hasn't been about all-stars. It hasn't been about certain, you know, plays here or there that the New York Yankees could make and help themselves. It has been about injuries. It started with D.D. Gregorius last year. Didi goes down, needs Tommy John surgery on his elbow. He's going to miss the beginning of the season. Then, beginning of the year, you lose Luis Severino and Dylan Patances. They both have arm issues. Season starts, you lose Miguel Andujar. Here it's his shoulder. Ultimately comes back, but then has surgery and is done for the year. You lose Troy Tulowitzki, who was never really a big part of this team anyway, but, you know, you lose him. At one point this year, you lose Gary Sanchez. At one point this year, you lose Luke Voigt. At one point this year, you lose your left fielder in Giancarlo Stan. At one point this year, you lose your right fielder in Aaron Judge. At one point this year, and still to this point, you lose Aaron Hicks, your center fielder. At one point this year, you lose every single replacement guy that the New York Yankees could have hoped for to help them out. They have had their starting catcher, their starting first baseman, their starting shortstop, their starting third baseman, their starting left fielder, their starting center fielder, their starting right fielder, their DH, their ace, and members of their bullpen on the IL this year. It has been unfathomable. And just when, just when, you think it's going to come to a close just when you see the light at the end of the tunnel that, hey, we're getting Luis Severino back. Hey, we're getting Dellen Batances back. Hey, Edwin Encarnacion looks like he might be ready to play soon. Hey, you might be able to get some contributions from guys that, hey, you haven't really seen play this year, like Giancarlo Stanton and the likes. What happens? They get another injury and another and another. And last week... You got Dylan Batances coming back. Rah, rah. Going to help the bullpen. The big strength for the Yankees. Get hurt. Pitching on the mound in Toronto. Blows out his Achilles. Done for the year. And then what happens on Friday of this past week? A play in the middle of the field. Glaber Torres. Pulls up lame, grabbing his knee. Thankfully, thankfully, was not hurt. MRIs come back negative. He's still sitting out. Yankees have an off day on Monday when I'm recording this podcast. So he survives an injury scare. But when is it going to stop? When are the Yankees going to get their karma this year? Because I see teams like the Houston Astros, the LA Dodgers, these teams getting these praises and getting everything of their just desserts going out there, playing in and suiting up day in and day out and never having to worry about a damn thing. And you know what it is with the Yankees? It's the same story every week. Who's going to get hurt this week? Who's going to be changed because an injury happened in the outfield? Or who's going to have to step up? And it is made for great entertainment, but I'm sick of it. I don't want to see injuries anymore. And it's going to screw the Yankees out of home field advantage because they have to worry now about who's going to get hurt rather than who they can pitch or who they can throw or who they can bat to help them win a game and try and surpass Houston. I'm sick of it. But there's nothing you can do anymore. And at this point, the only thing you can hope for is that the Yankees don't have another truly devastating injury derail their season. What else can you say? 
Next Man Up has been a rallying cry for the Yankees, and they have deserved all the praise that they have gotten because guys like Mike Ford and Mike Talkman and Gio Urshela and Clint Frazier when he was up at the beginning of the year and Cameron Mabin and all the guys that helped out in the bullpen and all the guys that pitched during the middle of the rotation have done a good enough job to get the Yankees to where they need to be. But after a certain amount of time, you shouldn't have to rely on those guys. You should get some karma built up or some breaks. But right now, I don't think that's coming for the Yankees. There are some other things to look for as far as playoff potential. Obviously, next week, we will get into a full in-depth analysis on the Yankees series, which will be game one on October 4th. Odds are, unless they pass Houston, who right now I think they have one less loss than I as on Monday night. They both have 102 wins. Houston 54 losses, Yankees 55. So Houston has played one less game than the Yankees. Uh, unless that changes, Houston will have home field advantage throughout the playoffs because right now both of them have a better record than the Dodgers by two games. And then Houston will play the wild card winner, which as I mentioned, will be a game between either Oakland, Tampa, or Cleveland, some combination of those two, and the Yankees will get Minnesota. It seems like right now you could get a rotation that's Paxton and Severino. Uh, Severino has looked really good since coming back, and Paxton has been phenomenal in his last 11 starts. And then Tanaka in Game 3. Obviously, this past week, there was the big story about Domingo Harmon and how he is being investigated by the Major League Baseball's commissioner's office because of a domestic violence situation that apparently went down. I do not have any of the details, nor do I really think I am qualified to speak on it. The only thing I know is that the Yankees said that he will not be playing this postseason because of this investigation. And hey, domestic violence is a very serious issue. It deserves to be taken with the utmost seriousness. And therefore, I think it's the right thing that the Yankees are doing and putting this guy on this list and sort of realizing like, hey, He's been good for us, and he's been somebody that we would have definitely started in the playoffs, but this is not to be played with. This is more than just sports, and that's smart of them. So their last series is against Tampa Bay, 